0: world hoping that wherever you are you're having a good morning a good afternoon a good evening whatever you've got this is the debut episode of the in my footsteps podcast i am thrilled that you could join me my name is christopher setterlin i'm going to try to give you a little bit of an escape from the world we're going to have a little bit of interesting history tidbits new england travel where to go what to see when the time is right a little bit of retro going back in time, and some more interesting things as we go along. But as I said, this is the debut episode, so it's going to be kind of a work in progress. So I wanted to share a little bit about me and why I'm doing this podcast. So I am a 12th generation Cape Cotter. I will get a little bit more into what that exactly means later on. I currently have five books out in stores with a sixth in post-production, so the first three were all entitled In My Footsteps. Uh, They were travel guides. They included Cape Cod and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. I used my knowledge of Cape Cod and the islands to kind of share some places to go and visit, to eat, to shop, things like that, and included... Photography and GPS coordinates, too, to make it easier to find everything. This led into a second trilogy of books, this time through Arcadia Publishing. My first three books were through Schiffer. The Arcadia Publishing books uh, were Historic Restaurants of Cape Cod and Cape Cod Nights, which was historic nightlife and clubs and whatnot. The sixth book, the one that's in post-production now, is Iconic Hotels and Resorts, so that should be coming out hopefully in the spring of 2021. So I've been a lover of photography and travel and history and all that good stuff for a long time, and that's kind of what all came together to make the In My Footsteps travel blog. I've actually had the same blog since January 2010. It all began kind of as a coping mechanism. After my Nana had passed away a few weeks earlier, I basically got in my car and drove to a bunch of different towns. I mean, a couple of hundred started on Cape Cod and then branched out all over New England and basically just took pictures of things I was interested in, places I wanted to see. And then I would write about them, history and what made them unique. Kind of like if I cared about something, I wanted to make someone else care about it and maybe go and see it. So that was kind of the the genesis of all of this that has come since, all the books and everything. The irony was that when I first started doing this travel blog, gas was over $4 a gallon and I had a Jeep, which was getting a whopping 18 miles a gallon. So as I started driving from Cape Cod up into New Hampshire and Maine, It was a lot of money, so I had to actually get a new car just to support the travel blog that really didn't make any money for me. It was quite a good creative endeavor for me. I became a bit of an amateur historian as I started doing some writing for uh, the Travel Channel, Cape Cod Magazine, Cape Cod Life Magazine, uh, CapeCod.com. It was fun to research things that I wasn't particularly interested in as a kid And share that with a surprisingly captivated audience. I never was much of a public speaker. I was way more of an introvert growing up. But having books that got released, I ended up having to do events, speaking engagements at libraries and bookstores and clubs and that whatnot. And it actually forced me to come out of my shell and have to learn how to speak to groups, which I never thought I'd be doing. And it actually got easier. I was surprised how much people were interested in what I had to offer as far as information. So over time, these pieces that I wrote about Cape Cod, Massachusetts, New England history, I did a little playoff on the in my footsteps was always I wouldn't write about a spot that I hadn't physically been to. So the historical stories became in their footsteps because I obviously didn't, walk around in 1870 and see these things. So I thought it was a neat little playoff on the the blog that I have. So that was where the title for the history pieces came from. And also on this podcast, there's going to be some New England travel reviews. That comes straight from the In My Footsteps blog. I've been to hundreds of cities and towns in New England and some more in eastern the eastern United States. And I just want to share things that I've seen, things that might interest people. You know, People may not know about some of these little out-of-the-way places, and it might help small businesses and things like that, especially in this day and age. So I'm hoping to help in that manner. But it's not going to be all history and travel. So I grew up in the 1980s, and obviously a lot of that retro culture is now back in style, 80s and 90s. So in addition to the travel and some of the historical stuff that's interesting, I'm also going to have a little bit of the nostalgia, a trip down memory lane where I'll talk about something interesting from the 80s or 90s that is sure to jog the memories of a lot of people my age and maybe freak out some people that are younger that can't believe that things like that actually occurred or used to exist, you know, things like rotary telephones that I remember. And as the episodes go on, there's going to be other segments that are going to be added, but I'll keep those under wraps as I start to branch out. But enough about that. Uh, so this is called In My Footsteps. So let's take a walk. Welcome to the first installment of the In Their Footsteps segment of the podcast. This is basically going to be a walk through history. Whether it's Cape Cod, New England, anywhere. But this will be where I kind of discuss some interesting people, places, events. They don't always have to be super serious. But this is kind of the beginning. As I said before, I'm a 12th generation Cape Codder. So what exactly does that mean? And how do I know that? My family is the Doan family. My nana on my father's side, she was the last of the actual people to carry the Doan name. So Doris Doan Souza. she married into the Sutherland family, so that's why there's no actual last name Doan left in the family. The first generation of my family, the first link in the chain to actually live on Cape Cod was a man named John Doane, a pretty common name, especially coming from England. So John Doan uh, was my ninth great-grandfather. He was born apparently in the small village of Alvachurch in the Bromsgrove district of Worcestershire, England on May 28th, 1592. And in his early years, he worked as a cordwainer, which is basically a shoemaker. And to show you how common the John Doan name was, he actually had another John Doan that lived basically in the same town, but he was a white baker, basically a bread man. So John Doan lived in... England for most of his life, but he sailed to America likely aboard the ship called the Handmaid in August of 1630. That was the last pilgrim ship that left England during the Puritan Great Migration period of 1620 to 1640, about there. When he arrived in Plymouth, he was immediately seen as someone of high respect he, he earned the term mister, which I guess was kind of special back then. Uh, in 1634, only a few years after he got to the Plymouth Colony, he was made a deacon of the Plymouth Church. And that's where his name, Deacon John Doan, came from. He had five children with his wife, Anne, Lydia, Abigail, John, Ephraim, and Daniel. Daniel Doan is the one that continues my tree. He would be my eighth great-grandfather. John Doan uh, was also elected to the Council of Assistance to the governor when he got there, along with Captain Miles Standish, William Bradford, Stephen Hopkins, William Gilson, John Alden, and John Howland. Back then, when they had the governor, especially in the 1630s, they were basically voted on every year. So William Bradford was governor several times, also John Carver and Thomas Prentz. John Doane was never governor of Plymouth, though. Uh, when the Doane family got to Eastham, they were granted some land on Salt Pond, approximately 200 acres of farmland. That became the Doan homestead, and that's where Deacon John Doan and the family lived for the next three decades or so. He died February 21st, 1685, just shy of his 93rd birthday. And living to be 93 back in the 1600s would probably be like living to be 150 these days. So he lived a very, very long life. And he was buried in the Cemetery Cove burying ground, which is right on Route 6 in East Ham, on your way towards the National Seashore. Which is the irony is that the Cape Cod National Seashore, a lot of that land was the Doan Homestead. If you drive and go past the Salt Pond Visitor Center, it's a mile maybe down. On the right-hand side is Doan Rock, which is a big glacial boulder. The people don't usually go down behind it. It's another half mile maybe. It's an easy walk to get to a spot that's called the Doan Homestead. It's got a monument there. It also has, I don't know if it's the outline of the actual foundation of the home because there's no real remains of it. But there's a, there's a marker, and it shows where it would have overlooked the ocean. And if you go to the Cove Burying Ground, he's buried in there. Deacon John Doane is actually buried in the cemetery, but they don't know where. So basically, he's got a big stone in the middle of it that just mentions who he is, who he was. And surrounding him is the other Dones. Uh Daniel Doan, my eighth great-grandfather, is in there. He may not be as well known as some of the other later pilgrims that came through Plymouth County, but Deacon John Doan was definitely important when it came to Cape Cod and the Outer Cape, the establishment of East Ham, and he's my bloodline. So that naturally, he weighs a little more importantly to me. And before anyone asks, uh, especially longtime Cape Codders, I get a lot of questions about if I'm related to the funeral people don't be and, and i can say in all honesty i have no idea another one is uh seth doan who is a correspondent for cbs international he's usually stationed over in china i believe he's another one that i don't know if we're related although i have reached out and tried but that may be a question for the doan family association i'm a member of the group on facebook and i'm sure they have a lot more information than me But just in case anybody was wondering about that. So that's a little bit about Deacon John Doan and the link to me and my family, the Doan family. Obviously, the question would come up as to how do I know all of this? It's kind of hard to track down records from over 400 years ago. That comes down to Ancestry.com was a lifesaver. I don't know if any of you have ever gone on Ancestry and done. They do two-week free trials. I don't know if any of you have ever tried that. Basically, you start with yourself and you start to create your tree. You can put siblings, parents, grandparents. Most people know those things. And a cool thing happens when you start to put that in, you get the little hints. They're like leaves, leaves on the tree. And you click on them and you'll start to see records and documents and other people's trees that you can kind of piece into your own. It's like stitching together a quilt. And that's how it happened for me. Deacon John Doan... I'm not special in being related to him. Someone who came across on one of the pilgrim ships and docked in Plymouth Colony, he's got lots of relatives. It's a huge spider web of people. Finding connections to him was very easy. And you start to go back and back and back. And before you know it, you've gone back 12 generations. And even further, the Doan family, I actually found connections back a thousand years But going back a thousand years to feel relatively comfortable in saying that, granted it could be wrong, but it's like writing. When you're writing an article and you need to have sources to back up what you say, it's always wise to have at least two different sources corroborating the same information. And I chose to do the same sort of thing with my family tree on Ancestry because anyone can put up one fake hint and then you put it in and your tree is ruined. But if you have two different trees saying the same thing, it's highly likely that that is true. So that's basically what Ancestry did and helped me to trace my tree back. But kind of a side note to that is, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of people, you know, young and old, when you're younger, you don't really have an interest in your family history. You don't have an interest in the history of the place you grew up. That's all kind of, eh, you know, whatever. And that used to happen with me where my grandmother told me about places and people, especially cemeteries. (laughs) I don't know why, but she would say, you're related to a bunch of different people in this cemetery, that cemetery. Essentially, my Nana was the driving force behind me taking an interest in the history of my family. And I made it a point to... Trace the family tree back as far as I could for her before she passed away in 2009. So I knew a lot of this back right before she died. And right after she did, that kind of led into the travel writing that I did. So it's it's all connected. Enjoying finding out about the family, uncovering the different names, going to the places that they lived or they visited. That's why Doan Rock and the Doan Homestead is so interesting Because I know at some point, someone that shares DNA with me lived out there. And I'm sure it's the same for anyone who's grown up, not Cape Cod, New England, anywhere in the world. You start to discover the people that were important in your family long before you were here. And then you want to go and stand where they stood. And that's a lot of the in my footsteps thing comes from me standing where they stood and the in their footsteps, which is this segment here, the kind of the history part. But I would highly recommend to anyone who has any interest in their own family history to check out Ancestry.com and do their free two-week trial and just see what opens up. You might fall down the rabbit hole like me and you may end up with your own in-their-footsteps ideas. So before we go on, just a little sidetrack. Did you know that there's 114 miles of bike trails on Cape Cod alone? And there's hundreds and hundreds of more miles of bike trails throughout Massachusetts and the rest of New England. So for those of you that enjoy being outdoors and enjoy bike trails, you need a bike. If you've got one, if you don't have one, if you want to rent one, buy one, there's one place that you really have to check out. That's Barb's Bike Shop at 430 Route 134 South Dennis. They've been open since 1989 with high service, high quality. They've got all kinds of bikes, road bikes, hybrid bikes, street bikes. they got the fat tire bikes that you can go on the beach with. They've even got electric bikes. they got sales, rentals, repairs. They do tune-ups. They've even got an air pump you can pull up and pump up your tires. So if you're looking for... Great service, great quality of bikes. Check out a place that's been open for over 30 years, Barb's Bike Shop, Route 134 South Dennis. Call them at 508-760-4723. Visit their website at barbsbikeshop.com and you'll be pleasantly surprised. A little spot out of the way, but they've had high quality for a long time. So go and check them out, Barb's Bike Shop. Make sure to say hi to Mike when you're in there and mention that the In My Footsteps podcast directed you towards their business. I'm sure that will make his day. Barb's Bike Shop. Go check him out. All right, it's road trip time. So this is going to be the first in a series of segments showcasing some of the Best places to visit in New England and eventually beyond for travel. This was how everything got started in uh, 2010 with my In My Footsteps travel blog, where I would go visit different towns across New England and find places to photograph, to check out, to explore. And I would share the photos and the descriptions of the places that I saw. And it was one of those things that if people enjoyed it and ended up going there, that's great. If not, it was a creative outlet that I really enjoyed just sharing about my home and the regions around it. I've always loved the the idea of the road trip. Everyone loves travel, so that's not really special. I can't say, oh, I love the travel and it's a big shock. But the idea of the road trip and getting in a vehicle and driving hundreds, maybe thousands of miles and just seeing everything you can, that's kind of a big throwback to like the Old West and exploring and finding new places. It's one of those things like, yeah, everything's been seen in this country, but if you haven't seen it, then it's new to you. And that's sort of the idea behind these segments about places to go and visit. I'm sure a lot of you will have seen these places but you never know. Maybe you haven't. So last year, basically about a year ago, I did my biggest road trip, and it was over six days, and it was 2,100 miles. I went out through western Massachusetts into New York and down south into Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, all the way down into North Carolina and the Outer Banks. So the first spot that I'm going to share with you was the first stop on that trip, actually, And it's out in the Berkshires of western Massachusetts, and that's the small town of Stockbridge. The Berkshires are an amazing place to visit, especially this time of year. Well, it might be a little past peak fall foliage. The Berkshires, in addition to Stockbridge, they include the towns like Pittsfield and Adams and Florida. I had to go visit Florida when I was out there. And there's also the Mohawk Trail, which is at least 60 mile stretch of road. It was an old native American trail and it's got these amazing twists and turns and Hills. It actually begins uh, in the Hudson river Valley in New York and it extends all the way East uh, roughly around Pittsfield, which is in central Massachusetts. But Stockbridge is one of the towns out there in the Berkshires. It's small. It's got a population of 1960 people that's as of 2018 but it's this small town with it's got the mountain town feel to it it has the classic main street one of those that you can walk down and there's a general store and it's just tree lined the first place i would recommend to visit is the norman rockwell museum that's on nine glendale road norman rockwell he's one of those guys he's an illustrator a painter if you don't know his name, you would know his work. He contributed covers for the Saturday Evening Post. It was like classic American life. You would see these paintings. If you look him up, Google him, you'll see these paintings. you would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They look like an old Christmas card. Some of them do, at least. But the museum has a lot of examples of his work. It's got his studio overlooking the hills of the Berkshires, which is really neat to see like the vantage point that he had ironically Rockwell didn't move to Stockbridge until 1953 long after his kind of his prime of his work and that was actually due to the proximity of a a psychiatric hospital for his wife and he actually went there too which is kind of sad that he would paint these scenes of beauty and happiness but he claimed that he never really lived his own uh, I would definitely recommend in this day and age that we're in to check their website, nrm.org, for their schedule, rather than just going there. Uh, if you're looking for a place to stay, a place to eat, you can get both at the Red Lion Inn. That's 30 Main Street. I found it just by walking on the Main Street. It's a classic sort of looking place. It was established in 1773, and it's a old-school hotel. There's even a guest house called the Maple Glen. It's got fine dining And it's been in the Fitzpatrick family since 1968, and a lot of famous people have stayed there, including presidents like Grover Cleveland, Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt, William McKinley and Calvin Coolidge, authors like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and legendary musicians like Bob Dylan have stayed there. A final place that I wanted to mention is the National Shrine of Divine Mercy, I want to preface this by saying you don't have to be religious to go there. I did not go there looking to go to any religious services. I went because it's 350 acres of open land on a spot called Eden Hill, and it has these amazing views of the surrounding Berkshires. And there's also the architecture. A lot of churches have the great architecture inside and outside that make for amazing photographic backdrops. I find myself drawn to places like that, even though I don't go in to, you know, worship. It's more or less a photographic opportunity. And the National Shrine of Divine Mercy, there's thousands of people that visit there annually. And I'm pretty sure that not all of them go to actually go to church. So anyway, you can go. And they're really cool about it. I went right up there and explained, you know, you get a ticket, you park, and you just walk the grounds. And it's a really cool feel out in the Berkshires. I'm a big fan. I went out there and was able to just totally immerse myself in the scenery. So again, Stockbridge, it's got that small mountain town feel. And it's not that far. It's 130 miles from Boston, straight out on the Mass Pike, basically. And it's 150 miles from New York City. So it makes it not too much of a a chore to get there from anywhere in New England, New York, Pennsylvania. Go to the stockbridgechamber.org and they've got a list of great things to see. I mean, I've only just scratched the surface here. I don't want to give it all away. And I hope you enjoyed this road trip. There'll be more to come as we go across New England and eventually someday expand beyond that into the surrounding states and who knows how far it'll go. And now comes the part of the show where we go way, 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 way back in the day to the 1980s and 1990s. As a child of the 1980s and a teenager of the 1990s, I always love looking back at the old days The retro stuff that a lot of it's now in style again. Being born in 1977, this whole back-in-the-day segment of the show is going to be basically things that I remember as a kid growing up. I can't go back any further than that because I don't have too many memories of the 70s. But I figured, what better way to start a sort of retro segment than the original Nintendo Entertainment System. The old NES. So anyone who's a kid of the 1980s or 90s, well, even today, Nintendo is a huge, huge name. But back in 1985, when it first came out, it blew away anything else that I had ever seen. A little bit about it. Nintendo was a company in Japan, and they had already been producing the Nintendo Entertainment System for a couple of years before they came to America. And the irony is... Initially, they wanted to kind of partner with Atari, who was the reigning king of the video game systems at the time, and, you know, kind of break into the American market. And then the video game crash of 1983 basically killed Atari. Uh, that's something I'll cover in another time. But basically, the cliff notes are that they severely... Overestimated the demand for their product going into the Christmas season. So they ended up with millions of unsold games, especially so ET was the game that basically they say that it killed Atari. It was rushed to try to get it out for the Christmas season and capitalize on how big the movie was. And the game, the developers tried, but it was such a rush job that it was just no good and it didn't sell well. And Atari had put together so many cartridges, and they just didn't sell. And the legend had it for years and decades that they took a lot of these unsold E.T. games and buried them in the desert somewhere. And ironically, a few years ago, they actually were discovered. They dug them up in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Thousands of these ET video games, not just ET, but you know, the other classics that they had, Centipede and Pac Man and Pitfall and those. So the video game crash almost killed the industry in America, which would have destroyed it for kids like me. So a couple of years later, October 18th, 1985, Nintendo released its NES because they realized they didn't have to partner with Atari anymore. They basically could compete with them because Atari was struggling, and they would never recover. And Nintendo, when it first came out, the video game system, it was a gray square rectangle, and it had these cartridges that you would put in there, and and the NES, when it came out, it initially cost $149.99. So if you adjust that for inflation for today, it would be like $360. And for comparison, the PlayStation 5 that has been released is four ninety nine ninety nine. So even back then in nineteen eighty five Nintendo was actually a pretty good deal. The video games themselves, the cartridges cost up to sixty dollars, which would be about a hundred and forty five dollars today. So that was not as good of a deal. And for those that remember getting it as a Christmas gift, you'll remember that it came with the Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt combination. And Super Mario Brothers, that's another legend for another back in the day segment but basically super mario brothers duck hunt and it came with the plastic gun that you could shoot at the screen and if you shot the ducks the dog would go and grab it and if you missed the duck the dog would pop up and laugh at you because you were terrible at shooting but there were a lot of legendary games that came out in the first few years of nintendo the legend of zelda everyone loved that game that was a huge seller Castlevania was one of my personal favorites. That was like a vampire game. Then there was Mega Man. Everyone remember Mega Man, where you were a robot and you fought all these other robots that were made to fight against you? And Mike Tyson's Punch Out. Mike Tyson's Punch Out was one of those games that it was so much fun, but so hard to play because there was no, well, I wouldn't say no way to beat Mike Tyson, but when you got to the end, he would just flick you and you'd be dead I got the best I could do was time blocking his punches and I would go the distance and lose the weird thing is today punch out is still a game but Mike Tyson's name is not involved with it after Mike Tyson's contract ran out with them they kept on releasing the game this was like in 1990 and they replaced Mike Tyson with Mr. Dream I don't remember ever playing it to fight Mr. Dream, but I'm sure he was just as hard as Tyson was. And then another one of my favorite games was Tetris. And that one, if you ever played Tetris, you can hear that music in your head right now. And that was the one where it was a puzzle game. Puzzle pieces would fall from the sky and you'd have to create lines and if you had a solid line, it would be removed and then the pieces would gradually get faster and faster until you just... Your eyes were crossing, and (laughs) they used to, they had that at the arcade, actually, too. You could play it at the arcade. Boy, they got a lot of quarters out of me. There was a sub shop down the street that had Tetris, and my whole goal was to try to get the top score, and I wasted a lot of quarters at the arcade. And I realize now that's a very retro sentence to say. But the other things, uh, as far as the video games themselves, those gray cartridges... I'm sure a lot of you that had the Nintendo remember if it didn't start right away, that you'd have to blow on the cartridge. It was sort of a magic. You just blow on the cartridge and put it in and suddenly it would work. I grew up in a house with five of us, five kids. And even though we didn't play video games quite as much as the kids today do, there would still be a log jam at times to play games. And there'd be times when my mother and stepfather would... You know, they tell you, you got to wait your turn. Let your brother play or let your sisters play. And I remember there are times, not just me, but all the kids. But you'd get mad and you, if you stomped your foot hard enough, the game would just eject and the game would be reset. That was a real fun way to get revenge on someone playing if you wanted to play the game. Later on, uh, they came out with the power glove. I don't know if anyone remembers that. That was a bust it was basically a controller that you wore on your hand. That was, uh, I never used it, but it seemed like it was something that was way too much money for not enough return. But the other big thing that came out at that time was the Nintendo game boy in uh, 1989. That's something that I'll, I'll definitely do another segment on that because that's something all on its own to have a handheld video game. And then in 1991, the super Nintendo came out. So the, NES was basically rendered obsolete, Super Nintendo was the new big thing, but the legacy of Nintendo, the NES, still carries on to this day. Super Mario Brothers, they've made so many of those games, and it sold over 40 million copies as of 2010 for the NES itself, just that game. And it kind of came full circle in 2016 when Nintendo released that little miniature replica of the NES, and that had 30 games built into it, so it was incredible. That thing sold out so fast I couldn't even get it in time. It had Super Mario and Legend of Zelda and a bunch of other games. But yeah, for anyone that grew up in the 1980s into the early 90s, Nintendo was where it was at. Sega was good. I liked the Sega Genesis more so than the Super NES, but it's, you know, heads or tails, same thing. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on the NES? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Do you wish that it was still around now? But this will be a recurring segment on the show going forward, just a little trip back in time, back in the day, way, way, way back to the 1980s or 90s. So if there's ever any subjects you want covered or something interesting like that, make sure, drop me an email, Setterland at gmail.com. And I hope you like this one. It was a lot of fun. I enjoy reminiscing about having to blow on the cartridges or stomping on the ground to eject it from against my brother and having Nintendo attitude. That was what it was called when we would get angry at the video games if you'd lose or if you'd get far or if your saved game got erased. I'll never forget that and definitely never forget the NES. So that's all the time we have for this debut episode of the In My Footsteps podcast. I want to thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to me rant about things I enjoy and things you might enjoy. If you have any questions or comments, you can send me an email, Christopher Setterland at gmail.com. I'll do my best to see how that goes with answering questions and maybe sharing some answers on future podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, Christopher Setterland, well, Chris Setterland on Twitter. I can't fit my whole name on Twitter. Uh, And Instagram. I'm on there a ton. I've got 4,000 photos you can go through and see (laughs) how I spend my time. Follow my Facebook author page. It's literally Christopher Setterland in my footsteps. I've been using that name for a while. You can become a subscriber on YouTube. I do a lot of... Videos, mostly 4K travel videos, those are pretty neat. You get kind of a cool view of Cape Cod, uh, New England spots. But 4K HD is really good. It's like you're there. So that's always a cool selling point. Uh, You can also go and check out my, in my footsteps, the original travel and lifestyle blog. That's on blogger.com. And of course, go to my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, if you're interested in any of my first five books Uh, They're available there. They're available at Amazon. You can also go to Schiffer Publishing or Arcadia Publishing to find them from the actual publisher. I wanted to give a big thank you to Amy Keller Jump. She's the one. Old friend of mine, very talented graphic designer. She came up with the podcast logo that you see when you search for it. If you're interested in her talents, you can go and find her at Cinerama in Braintree, Massachusetts. Go in and say hi. Tell her you like the logo because it's great. Another big thank you to DJ Williams for the show's intro and outro music, which is really cool. I found that on YouTube. You can go find his stuff on there as well. It's uh, great. If you like it, go give him a shout. Join me again uh, next time for episode two. I'm hoping to do these every other week to start and then kind of seeing how the time frame works. If I can pull off once a week, eventually we'll go to that. But right now, shooting for every other week. So join me for episode two, where we'll discover Cape Cod's lost Atlantis, uh, take a cliff walk in Newport, and relive the magic that we, well, people my age had of making mixtapes way back in the day. So thank you again for taking a walk in my footsteps. But remember, in life, create your own path. Thank you so much and take care, everyone.